Lord, teach Thy people to love Thy house, the best of all dwellings, Thy scriptures, the best of all books, Thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, best of all company, and that may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore Thy glory. Help us to keep always Thy day, the first of days, holy unto Thee, our Maker, our resurrection and our life, God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, we are in a continuing study of the first part of the book of Revelation, a look at these seven churches. And last week we started to look at the church in Philadelphia. We didn't finish our study of Philadelphia, a remarkable church, so I want to return to it today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And if we get through that, we'll go on to the last of these churches, the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We said last week that there's no such thing as a perfect church. And there's no such thing as a perfect church, obviously, because there's no such thing as a perfect person. So every church has its problems. Every church has its difficulties. It's one of the reasons why in these seven letters, Jesus always offers some sort of critique. There are only two exceptions to that, of course. And one was the church in Smyrna, which was a church that was characterized by suffering. And the other is this church that we came to last week and we continue to look at this week, and that is the church in Philadelphia. What that means is not that these were perfect churches, but that they were churches that were more deserving of praise, more deserving of commendation than others. And we need to recognize that what was true then is true today. There's no such thing as a perfect church, but there are some churches that are better than others. There are churches that are more effective than others in terms of advancing the kingdom of God. And the church in Philadelphia was a rather extraordinary one. I pointed out to you last week it was the youngest of the seven churches, whereas Ephesus had been founded by the Apostle Paul during his missionary journeys. Philadelphia came along later. What's more, it was a small church. Jesus makes mention of that in his words to them. He says, though you are not strong or you are not numerous in number, so this was a small church, it was a relatively new church, comparatively speaking, and yet it was a church that in spite of great difficulty, 
in spite of persecution, particularly from the Jewish community, was nevertheless remaining faithful to the gospel. And it is a church about which Jesus has nothing but praise. It is a church before which Jesus said he had set an open door. And we said last week that that expression, an open door, in the Bible, whenever you come across it, really refers to an opportunity. That is to say, Jesus had set before this church, there's a sense in which he'd set before all of these churches, but he said, I set before this church an open door, an opportunity. And we said that opportunity was really threefold. It was an opportunity, first of all, to hear the gospel message and respond in the affirmative to it. Jesus makes this point very clear. He sets before us two paths. One is a narrow way, and he says few find it. Yet it is a narrow way that when you find it leads ultimately to salvation. There is another way, he says, it is a broad way. It is well-traveled, but it is a broad way that ultimately leads to destruction. And that way had been set before this church. It's a way that is set before all of us, corporately and individually. And this two-way, this two-way path had been set before this church. They had found the narrow way and they had followed in it. They had received Jesus Christ and they were following after him. So the way of salvation, the opportunity for salvation had been set before them and they had found it and they had embraced it with joy, with enthusiasm. Second thing that was set before them was the opportunity for service. This is one of the things that characterized life in the early church. If you read through Acts chapter 2, they cared for one another. They served each other's needs. Jesus had set his disciples an example of servanthood. Even at the Last Supper, Jesus got down on the very night in which he was betrayed, the very night in which Jesus, Judas would sell him for 30 pieces for silver and the rest would desert him and Peter would deny him. Jesus got down on his hands and his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. And when he got up, he said, I've set you an example. He who would be great in the kingdom of God must become the servant of all. Now, that is just so countercultural to the way we think. Because we want to be the what? The top dog. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be the servant of all. Of course, that is the example of Jesus himself. We have that great hymn of Kenosis in Philippians. Or we're told that though he was in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. I pointed out to you before that in our culture, we are willing to let go of something good, provided we know something better is coming along, don't we? You know, you're willing to let go of a good house if you know there's a better house on the market. You're willing to let go of a, a good car if you know there's a better car on the market. Sometimes you're willing to let go of a good spouse because you think there's a better one on the market. I don't recommend it, by the way. But that's the attitude that we have. But Jesus, we're told, had the best. He was in very nature God, and yet he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, but he humbled himself and took the form of a servant. The Greek is doulos. It means bondservant. He took the form of a slave and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul says, God hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Jesus had the best, but he humbled himself and served. And that was the opportunity that was set before this church in Philadelphia, and they had done it. And finally, the opportunity that was set before them was the opportunity for evangelism, to share the good news. And one of the things that we said was so remarkable about this church is that in spite of the persecution they were facing, 
from without and from within, despite the pressure of the culture around them, and in spite of the fact that they were not numerous or strong, they were not wealthy like the church in Laodicea, nevertheless, they didn't make excuses. They went about the work of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a reminder to us, my friends, that God doesn't always, and Paul makes this point very clear in the very first chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he says, not many of you were noble. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were wise. That is highly educated. But God takes the ignoble things. God takes the small things. God takes the things that are not, the things that are despised, to bring to naught the things that are. This church was seizing the opportunity to share the gospel. I pointed out to you before, the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. A church that is not engaged, whose people, and remember, we're talking about the church, we're not talking about an institution here, we're talking about the people, that's what comprises the church. The church is not bricks, mortar, and stone, the church is what you see in this room today. If the church is not engaged in the work of evangelism, it's not being the church. So these opportunities, these open doors were set before this church in Philadelphia, and what? They had seized them all. In spite of their circumstances, in spite of their weakness, they nevertheless were out sharing the good news, making a difference in the world, and Jesus commended them for it. Now, I pointed out to you that this particular letter to the church in Philadelphia is filled with profound imagery, very graphic imagery, which is an extraordinary thing when you consider the fact that this is the book of Revelation. Revelation is filled with all kinds of images and symbols and so forth, but we find some very provocative ones here in Revelation chapter 3. One of them, of course, was this image of the open door, but it's not the only one. Go back again and look at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. That's another one of the images. Jesus sets before them an open door. But here's the image of a key. The true one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is not the first time that we've encountered the image of a key. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, when we begin this study, you'll see a reference to the key. Not this key, but to some keys. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. John writes, When I saw him, that is Jesus Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the what? The keys of death and of Hades. So Jesus is the one who possesses the keys. In the first chapter, he holds the keys to death and to Hades. That is a great encouragement to us as Christian people. What it means is that nobody on this earth dies by chance or by accident. God alone holds the keys to death and to Hades. Now, we have to be very careful here. I don't mean to suggest to you that when somebody dies tragically, God is causing that to happen. What I am saying is nobody dies without God's permission. And that should be a great encouragement to every one of us. God numbers the hairs on our head. He notes the fall of the sparrow from the sky. He holds the keys to Hades and to death. 
But he also holds, we see here, the key that opens the door and shuts the door. David's key. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that the key of David is really David's heir. Uh, We have a great hymn that... uh, captures this. I don't know if we're singing it today, although it's a great one for uh, the Lord's baptism. Hail to the Lord's anointed, and it has this stanza in it. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgressions, and to reign and rule with equity. That's the idea. Great David's greater son. The great promise that had been made to the Jewish people was that there would become a king from the line of David who was the greatest of their kings who would be even greater than David. He would be great David's greater son. The key, the root of Jesse. So when we read here this description of the church in Philadelphia, a picture of Jesus as one with the keys. It is the keys of death and Hades, but it is more than that. It is the key to life. Jesus not only holds the key, there is a sense in which Jesus is the key. And this is a point that is made over and over again throughout the New Testament. The most obvious example of it would be in John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What? And no one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the one that opens the door. I'm the one that shuts the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's an extraordinary claim. Many people today find it offensive. Let's be perfectly honest. When when you begin to talk about this, theologians refer to that as the scandal of radical particularity. You want to really wow your friends at a cocktail party, throw that phrase out at them sometime. The scandal of radical... Have you ever considered the scandal of radical particularity? They won't know what in the world you're talking about. But that's the scandal of the gospel. That Jesus Christ is not just a way. He's what? The only way. Now, we get offended by that. We say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. What about the Buddhists out there in the world? Or what about the Hindus in the world? Or how about the Muslims in the world? Or for that matter, how about the Jews in the world? It really is quite arrogant for you Christians to say that Jesus is the only way. Well, don't get mad at me. I didn't say it. (laughs) He said it. And furthermore, he is the one who, what, died and rose again. So if he died and rose again... I would say he has the authority to say it. And furthermore, we should not get upset about the idea that there's only one way to salvation. We really ought to rejoice that there is a way to salvation. I mean, let's look at it from God's perspective. He is under no obligation whatsoever to save anybody. Why? Because all have sinned. Isn't that what the Scripture says? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is what? So, how many sinners do we have in the room today? The wages of sin is what? So what do we all deserve? If God saves single one of us, is there not grace involved? See, everybody, I want you to understand something very important here. Nobody, nobody gets injustice from God. 
you get one of two things. You either get justice, what you deserve, or you get mercy, what you don't deserve. Let me tell you something. The drowning man who is offered a branch from a man on shore doesn't complain about the fact that he wasn't offered a life preserver. He rejoices that anything has been offered to him and he eagerly takes hold of it. That is what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. He has offered a means, a way by which mankind can be saved. And that means by which humanity may be saved is the person of Jesus Christ himself. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Which is one of the reasons why seizing that opportunity to share the gospel, seizing that opportunity to proclaim the good news is so important. It's why the church should feel the burden for those who are lost. But it's not just here in John chapter 14 that Jesus said it. It's interesting. If you read through the Gospel of John, there are a whole series of statements. They're called the I am statements that Jesus makes, and they are extraordinary claims. They caused him to run afoul of the Jewish religious leaders, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, but they are extraordinary claims. And many people in Jesus' day found them offensive. Many people today find them offensive. But if we're serious, we have to wrestle with every single one of them. Now, it's interesting to note they're called the I am statements. It doesn't seem to mean much to us today. But you have to remember that back in the Old Testament, every Jew would have understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. Back in the Old Testament, you'll recall that when Moses was up on the mountain and encountered God in the burning bush, how many remember that? Uh, Brian's going to throw out a phrase today, um, a theophany, uh, another one of those big words that you can throw out at a cocktail party. I'll let him define it, but a theophany is an encounter with God, basically. And that is what happened up there on the mountain. Moses encountered God. The bush was burning, but it was not consumed. And I love the way it's described. And Moses said to himself, hmm, I will go over and see why it is that that bush is burning and it is not being consumed. Now, you know that's not really what he said. They had to sanitize it because he was so surprised. He said, holy, you're going to go over there and see what this is all about. And he went over and it was out of that bush that was on fire but not being consumed that God spoke to him. And God explained what Moses' call was going to be. Moses was going to go before Pharaoh, the most powerful temporal ruler on the face of the earth, and he was going to say, let my people go. And furthermore, you're going to go to my people, the Lord says to Moses, and you're going to tell them that the Lord their God has seen their suffering, how they have been slaving away here in Egypt, making bricks without straw, and God has decided to liberate them from all of their difficulties. At which point, Moses shuffles his feet a little bit and responds to the Lord, if I go to your people and say, you're God, they're going to say, well, who's our God? Where's he been for the past 400 and some years? What shall I tell them is your name? It's very important in antiquity. God's always had names. You know, the, the Egyptians had Anubis, for example, and a host of others. So what shall I tell him is your name? And do you remember what God replied? 
He said, you tell them, I am who I am. Now, the most that any of us can say is, I am who I am by the grace of God. But God, who is eternal, simply says, you want to know who I am? I am. I am who I am. So when Jesus, in John's Gospel, begins to make statements like, I am, when he says things like, before Abraham was, I am, everybody knew what he was claiming. It was not just that he was claiming to have an authority. Jesus was claiming to be equal with the Father. He was claiming to be divine. Those are extraordinary claims. It was regarded as blasphemy in Jesus' day. That's one of the reasons why on more than one occasion they wanted to take him outside of town, throw him off a cliff, or stone him. Because Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. Just take a look at some of these. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. Can you imagine what an extraordinary claim? If you read through that section of John's Gospel, it's called the Bread of Life Discourse, you'll notice that some of the people begin to grumble and say, how can this man say this? Who does this man think he is to say that he is the true bread, that if we feed on him, we'll never be hungry, our souls will be perfectly satisfied, we'll never thirst again. And we're told that many of his disciples took offense and turned back and followed him no more. The Greek word for hard saying, and that's what they say, this is a hard saying, the Greek word is skleros. It doesn't mean hard to understand, it means hard to accept. They didn't like it. At which point Jesus then turned to Peter and the others and he said, well, do you want to go? And their reply is this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's an extraordinary claim on the part of Jesus. Jesus in John chapter 8 says, I am the light of the world. Follow me and you will never walk in darkness. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Abide in me, Jesus said, because apart from me you can do how much? Nothing. Not just a wee bit, not just a little. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. What Jesus is saying is, I am God. I am the way to joy, to hope, to felicity. I am the desire of your souls. Whatever you're hungering for, whatever you're thirsting for, I am the satisfaction for that. You are sheep that have gone astray. I am the good shepherd that comes out and seeks you. I am the door to the sheep pen. When the sheep are found and brought home, I am the door by which they enter into the kingdom of God. Those are extraordinary claims. And that is what is being talked about here in Revelation when we're told Jesus is the one that holds the keys. He holds the keys and He is the key. And we can give thanks to God that He is. But what is interesting is this. Jesus not only holds the keys to eternal life, to death and to Hades, but also to the kingdom of God. He is the one who hands those keys off to others. 
Keep your finger there in Revelation and turn back to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. Those of you who have been in my study on Matthew on Thursdays, we've looked at this text. It's an extraordinary text. Matthew chapter 16. At verse 13 we read, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Caesarea Philippi was the northernmost settlement in Palestine at that time. And I use that word Palestine specifically because this was the Roman province of Palestine. I want you to know, there was no such thing as a territorial Israel in the first century. It did not exist. There were people who were Israelites, but they lived in Palestine. It was the Roman province of Palestine. So this was the northernmost city in Palestine. And it was an odd place for Jesus to take his disciples. It was an odd place for him to take them for the very simple reason that it was the place that no self-respecting Jew would go. Um, it had been really set aside as a place for the cult of emperor worship but it was also known as the birthplace of the ancient god Pan, who was half goat and half man. It was a great place where there was a mixture of religions and cults. And even if you go there today, those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've been there with me, you've seen that great cave there out of which the, the waters of the Jordan River flow. And you've seen all of the niches and the altars that have been carved into the mountainside. There was a huge altar up there on the mountainside that was dedicated to Zeus and so forth. All these gods, all these deities, even emperor worship. And it's against that background that Jesus asks his disciples the question. He says, who are people saying I am? In other words, Jesus is saying, are, are they saying I'm just one of the many options that are out there? That's what our world says today. Well, Jesus is a great prophet, great moral teacher, great exemplar. And it's interesting, the disciples know exactly what the people are saying. They know what the rumors are. They've kept their ears very close to the ground. They want to be close to the king. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus gets very specific. He says, all right, how about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter, who I think on behalf of the others, speaks up. And he replies in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Christ means anointed one, that is to say you are the Messiah. He could have stopped right there. But he goes on, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter is confessing what we see up there in those I am statements. You are the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. Most of the Jews were expecting some sort of political or military Messiah to drive out the Romans. But Peter goes a step further. He doesn't merely say that Jesus is the Messiah everybody's been waiting for. He says, you are the Son of the living God, making Jesus equal with the Father. To which Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that means Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you, verse 19 is the critical verse, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Doesn't that sound remarkably similar to what we have here in Revelation? To open and to shut, to unlock and to lock. That's what Jesus had. That's what he possessed, those keys, and he was entrusting them to Peter. Now, I think when he said he was entrusting them to Peter, what he really meant was he was entrusting them to the disciples. Peter was representative because he was the leader of the apostles. But what were the keys that he was entrusting to Peter? Could Peter simply say, well, I like you, and I don't like you. I like you, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Is that what Peter was doing? No, when Jesus speaks of the keys of the kingdom of God, he's saying the message of salvation, the gospel of salvation. If you go out and proclaim the good news, you will open prison doors to those who are captives. That's what Jesus was saying. But if you refuse to go out, Peter, you've got this message. You know who I am. If you refuse to go out, then what happens to those who are deep in sin in nature's night? They remain in bondage. So I'm giving you the keys to go out and open up. It's interesting, in artwork, I should have put one up on the screen, in artwork, Peter is often depicted in stained glass windows and paintings and so forth, holding two keys. Did you ever notice that? Now, I think that's just representative. I mean, I suppose they could have given him a whole ring of keys, but, but he's given two. And I like the fact that he's given two because of all the apostles, Peter was the first to preach the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And I think that's what's represented by the two keys. These are the two great factions in Jesus' day, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews, we know who they are. The Gentiles are everybody that's not a Jew. You know, we think of Paul as the great apostle to the Gentiles, don't we? The one who went out and preached the message to the Greco-Roman world. But actually, the first person to preach the gospel to the Gentiles was not Paul, it was Peter. Peter preached the gospel to his own people on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and anointed them with the Holy Spirit. Then he preached to the Gentiles at the home of Cornelius. You remember that story in the book of Acts? Where he saw that image of the great sheet that came down that held all the unclean animals on it and he was told to kill and to eat. And then he heard a knocking at the door and there were envoys, representatives of this man, this Roman soldier, Cornelius, who wanted to hear from Peter, and Peter went and he preached to the Gentiles. He went into a Gentile's house, preached to Cornelius and his companions, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, those Gentiles, in the same way that he'd fallen on the Jews in Jerusalem sometime before. So Jesus holds the keys. He entrusts those keys of salvation, of eternal life, the message of the gospel to what? To us. He'd entrusted them to the church in Philadelphia, and they used the keys. Here's the question. Are we using those keys? You know, it's interesting to note that one of the churches before this was described as a church that was, had the reputation for being alive, but was in fact what? Dead. They had the reputation for being alive. They were going through all the programs and so forth, but they were dead. I said to you, it's like the difference between a swamp and a mountain lake. A swamp has water flowing into it. A lake has water flowing into it. 
But the difference is the swamp has very little water, if any, flowing back out of it, whereas a mountain lake has the water flowing in and the water flowing back out. Let me tell you something. The church is like that. The church can have the gospel faithfully preached in season and out of season from the pulpit. It can be flowing into the hearts of the people. But if that same gospel is not taking root in the hearts of those people and flowing back out into the world, that church will become stagnant and die. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. If the gospel has been preached, is the gospel flowing back out into the culture? Are we engaged in this work of evangelism? Now, I know that intimidates people, and they say, I don't know how to do it. I've said it to you before. You can be an evangelist. If you've got a mouth and you can talk, you can do this. You don't have to have a degree in theology. All you need to do is tell people what Christ has done for you. Most of the time, that's what the Apostle Paul did. You know, it's interesting. If you read through the book of Acts, one of the things you'll notice is that the story of Paul's conversion is told three, maybe four times in the book of Acts. Now, if you get one story in the Bible, you should sit up and take notice. You get it twice? Wow. Three times? My goodness. What Paul did when he was in prison, what Paul did when he stood before the Roman governors, when he stood before King Agrippa, they said, Paul, why are you doing this? You're being persecuted. You've been beaten with rods. You've been imprisoned. You've been shipwrecked. You've been bitten by snakes. My goodness, why do you persist in this? And you would have expected Paul to give some great theological treatise. He never does it. He says, let me tell you what happened to me. And he shares his story of what Christ had done for him. And nobody can say, that didn't happen to you. They might say you're crazy, but they could not say that never happened to you. You can share your story. If you're a Christian, what you're saying is that God has made a difference in your life. He's changed you. You are not the person you once were. And let me tell you something. Every day is filled with opportunities to share that message with others. All we have to do is have our eyes open to what the opportunities are. This church in Philadelphia had its eyes opened. The keys of the kingdom had been entrusted to them, and they were using those keys to share the good news, and it was making all the difference in the world. And to say, well, I'm only one person. Let me tell you something. God and Jesus Christ took 12 men, 12 ordinary men, now, let's be honest. If you and I were going to change the world and we had to come up with a plan to change the world and you had to pick 12 people to do it, would you have chosen Peter? Probably not. But I want you to know something about God. And I want you to know something about when God calls you to do something. God does not write this down if you need to. God does not always call the qualified but God always qualifies the called. So write that down if you've never written it down before. God doesn't always call the qualified, but God always qualifies the called. That was the case of this church in Philadelphia. The door is locked, my friends, 
unless we open it. Through service, through gospel living and gospel proclaiming, the world is dark and we are called to be the light. And the light never shines so brightly as in a dark place. So if you think our world is in a very bad place, what that simply means is that the opportunities for us to make a difference for the sake of the kingdom of God have never been greater. Well, Jesus makes a promise to this church, and the promise is this. He says, because you've held fast, and if you continue to hold fast, I will make you a pillar. A pillar in the temple of God. That's the other image. We have the image of a key, the image of an open door. This is the third one. It's the image of a pillar, a pillar that holds up the building. I'm going to make you something which makes the temple of God stand. I was once invited to a dinner when I was the rector at St. David's in Chiraw. And I was, uh, this man was at the table, and I was introduced, and I was told that he was uh, a member of the congregation. Well, I'd been there for three years, and I'd never laid eyes on him. And I said, oh, he's, he's a member of the congregation. I said, no, I understand you're a member of St. David's. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, well, I'm not exactly what you would call a pillar of the church. He said, I'm more like a flying buttress. I support from the outside. (laughs) We don't need flying buttresses, let me tell you something. What we need are pillars of the church. And that is what Jesus was going to make this church small, insignificant in the eyes of the world. He was going to make these individuals pillars of the church. He says, so hold fast. I am coming soon. Hold fast. It may seem for a while as though you cannot make it. He said, but trust me. Paul put it well. He says, the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed to us. For no eye has seen, no ear has heard, it has not even entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. I pointed out last week that this area in and around Philadelphia was plagued by earthquakes. This was a highly volcanic area. I said that the city of Philadelphia had actually been destroyed. It had to be rebuilt with the help of an imperial subsidy. This was a place that was shaken on a regular basis. At one point, the people couldn't even live in the city for fear of falling masonry. They had to go out and live in tents. The ground was constantly being shaken, and what Jesus is saying to them is, I'm going to make you a pillar in a building that is unshakable, that is established upon a sure foundation. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that kind of a community? Wouldn't you like to know that no matter what may happen to the world, you are on a sure foundation, you cannot be shaken. We have a wonderful hymn that sums this up well. I know you're familiar with it. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand 
upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The last stanza reads this way, The soul that to Jesus hath fled for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, shall endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That was the promise to the church in Philadelphia. God grant that that promise that is made to us might make us a church in whom Jesus finds nothing to criticize. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful message of the church in Philadelphia, for the example that these people set for succeeding generations. We noted last week that of all the seven churches, the only two churches that are still in existence to this day, some of these cities, most of which lie in ruins, the only two churches that are still alive today are the church in that area around Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, the two churches about whom your son had nothing negative to say. We want St. Philip's to stand for generations to come, Lord. We need to be like these churches, a church that is willing to stand for the truth even if suffering is involved, a church that will see the opportunities set before us, the open doors that have been opened to us, and we will walk through them. Grant us the grace, Lord, that we may be a church that is around for not just centuries, but for all eternity, a pillar in the temple of God. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week, by the way, next week we will have the Rector's Forum. We are not going to get to the Church of Laodicea next week. We have a guest preacher coming in, Reverend Canon J. John from England. He's a well-known evangelist. So we're a great opportunity to have him. He'll be in the Rector's Forum next Sunday, and the Sunday following we'll go ahead and take a look at the church, the last church, the church in Laodicea, the only church about which Christ has nothing good to say. So. Thank you. God bless you, brother. Thank you.